Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for over 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by uh, Dr. Richard Buzzichelli. He's a lecturer in theology for Catholic Studies Academy, and Dr. Benjamin Smith, who is our lecturer in philosophy. Today, our topic is going to be pulled from one of the courses that's now being offered, which is Introduction to Moral Theology, taught by Dr. Richard Buzzichelli. And today, our topic that we're going to pull from that course is uh, the sin of detraction and the Ten Commandments and kind of their uh, disappearance from society and even some sections of Christianity and wherever else the conversation takes us. Uh, so to begin our, our podcast today, maybe Dr. Buzzichelli, before we uh, get started into the sin of detraction, maybe you can give us a, a quick uh, one-minute tour of uh, our current course offering uh, in theology, which is Introduction to Moral Theology. Right. So in Introduction to Moral Theology, we're we're not getting into um, specific topics in any great depth like the one we're going to be talking about today, but we're talking about the broad contours of moral theology, how like this are the tools we need to just do moral theology, right? Mm-hmm. So concepts like uh, malum in se, uh, or that is evil in itself, right? The idea of, um, of an act which is, which is um, prohibited by the divine and natural law, right? Mm-hmm. And to which, therefore, there are no exceptions. This concept is, is really important to Catholic thought in morality. And if we dispense with that, then we're no longer doing the same project. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right? So um, that kind of idea. And also, um, you know, the distinction between mortal and venial sin, what goes into a mortal sin, right? How do we analyze um, the, moral, the moral quality of an act, and how do we assess the moral character of an agent? Those kinds of questions, right? We'll take a look broadly at the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, the uh, spiritual and corporal works of mercy, right? So those are all those are all topics we'll address at least in a cursory fashion in the course. That's good from a a beginning standpoint, you know, whether. Uh, you're a skilled apologist in some of the moral issues or even just kind of beginning out in your study of the Catholic faith. It's important to begin with kind of those foundational issues and build up kind of a, especially when you're working with morality, to build up, I think, you know, a good kind of infrastructure of your own understanding of, you know, where all of these things come from so that you can then move into, like you said, uh, uh, move into doing moral theology and in that right. Way. If we don't have these tools, then when particular questions arise, we won't really be able to address them in an intelligent, informed way. Right. Exactly. And that's super important, especially when it comes to uh, any of the moral uh, teachings of the church today. It's important to have all of the tools uh, available for us to, to use and to, to be able to look uh, at a particular issue with some objectivity uh, from the whole breadth of the church's uh, tradition. Uh, so let's get started in today's topic with the sin of detraction. So let's begin uh, uh, by maybe defining our terms and maybe distinguishing them from others. So, uh, Dr. Booz Kelly, why don't you get us started? How how do we understand the sin of detraction? What is it? Maybe how do we understand it maybe from some of the other sins like culminy? So um, the sin of detraction is a sin whereby we engage in some sort of speech or representation of another person which undermines the person's good name right so um but it does so in an unnecessary way 
Okay, mm, so it's one thing for us to um, it's one thing for us to bring a case to justice, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody commits a crime, and then we make an accusation if it's a serious enough matter, right? We make an accusation and we try the person, we pronounce him guilty, and of course that does um, damage the person's reputation, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really not the case in traditional Catholic thought that every offense needs to be adjudicated in that way. And that, um, so this idea that, that sins of one's past can be sort of um, uh, left to sort of die, right? To, they, could, they could recede into history and be forgotten by, uh, by your fellow man. Mm -hmm. Now, God, of course, remains the ultimate judge. And if God sees fit to bring it up again at judgment, of course, you know, he's perfectly entitled to do so. Right. But um, there but in human society, if we're to maintain civilization, we really can't be dredging up every failure, every foible, every discretion, every indiscretion. Right. Every bad judgment, every villainous act that every human being has ever performed in the course of his entire life. Even if we have it on video now. <laughs> yeah. Even if we have it on. Right. So. So the interesting, this is, I think this is an increasingly significant issue, an increasingly important sin today, uh, and one which has largely been forgotten. So in the idea of detraction, of course, is gossip, right? Mm -hmm. What's interesting about detraction is that it differs from calumny in that calumny presupposes that um, we don't actually believe that what we're saying is true or we're willfully misrepresenting it, right? Right. But detraction doesn't. Detraction simply involves bringing it up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in such a way that we do harm to a person's reputation. So let me, um, let me I'll give you an example, right, of where detraction would come in. Yeah, let's talk about Dr. Smith. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say that, let's say that, um, that someone used to... Um, I don't know, smoke pot in high school or something, right? Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, they were a hard partier and did some pretty stupid things. And, you know, and many of them were probably against the law. Um, and then years later, this person has grown, maybe even against the odds, into a responsible adult and is now um, conducting himself, right, with, you know, with... Um, a conscientious um, disposition, right? Okay. And, you know, obeying the law, um, uh, trying to um, trying to care for the needs of others, et cetera, et cetera, conducting himself as an upstanding citizen in every measurable, observable respect. But we, we then dig into this person's past and throw before the world the way they behaved in high school. We make an issue out of this, right? And now what... Um, what people think of when they think of this per person, right, is someone who smoked pot and partied heavily in high school and is probably a wastrel, right? Mm -hmm. So we've harmed the person's reputation, and we've done so for no uh, justifiable reason as far as the common good of the human community goes. Yeah, all I hear is politics. <laughs> everything you're talking about just seems like that, like everything you just described sounds like a, a political strategy uh, on both sides or all three sides, yeah. how many sides we right. have. It just, it sounds like a, 
uh, a political strategy. And I would say, you know, they would probably argue, well, you know, if somebody's, you know, let's just take the, the, the example of the politician. Well, if they're running for office, you know, we should look at everything. Um, you know, it, a lot of times I think people uh, uh, say, well, the, the you know, we're, we're trying to get at the truth of who this person is and the truth of, uh, you know, shouldn't we be speaking the truth about this person? So, you know, how do, how do we maybe balance or, you know, where do we draw the line between telling the truth and detracting somebody from somebody's name? Right. Well, first of all, it's a firm um, position in Catholic thought traditionally, right, that not we're not entitled to all truths. Mm, we're, we're simply not entitled to know all things about all people. Mm. Uh, th- so there's this phrase, right, that the church throws around in its documents, uh, which sounds weird to us. Today, we're not used to hearing it, but the phrase is occult knowledge, right? Okay. So this is this is something that I would know, but to which I have no right. So this mm-hmm. might include, for example, um, let's say that you overhear someone's confession. You, you have occult knowledge of that person's sins, mm-hmm. right? And the church does not actually um, recognize that you have a right to use that knowledge, right? Um, that's not your knowledge to have, right? And so um, you're supposed to sort of conduct yourself more or less as if it, as if you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you're certainly not licensed to seek out knowledge, which is a cult, right? That's the whole idea behind a cult knowledge is you have no right to it. So you're wrong to seek it out, right? And you're wrong to introduce others to it uh, if they don't, if, if there's no good reason for them to have it. Well, how do you, how do you square that with like, so I mean, I think uh, I maybe have an idea about this, but let you speak to it. How do you square that with like the good that is truth, right? Yeah. So like, truth is a good for the human intellect, right? Uh-huh. Um, why shouldn't I know the truth about things? Well, ultimately, what you want to know is the ultimate truth, right? Mm-hmm. By which the world uh, ultimately derives its meaning and for which it has its purpose. Um, but you know whether this guy over here smoked pot in high school is, doesn't really, um, yes, it's a truth. It's a particular truth, right? It's not wow. the truth for which your intellect is, uh, is made. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, sure. That makes sense. It seems to be part of the, the position here. You correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a harm done by the revelation of certain truths, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so that there's a, yeah, there's a, even though truth is a good, there's a there's a harm done to the person when certain truths are revealed about that person that is say deprive him of his good name. So maybe you want to say something about like why is the good name important? Because that seems to be the loss of the good that's at, at stake here. The good name involves a person's position within the community of man, right? Mm-hmm. And it's fundamentally good for each human being to be socialized. Right. We can't we're not supposed to live in radical isolation. We're not supposed to be excluded from the community. So exclusion from the community is, um, you know, it's a fairly radical form of punishment for for serious crimes against that community. And we we should not um, you know, we shouldn't be so ready. In fact, we should I think in my view, we should resist uh, imposing that penalty, except in fairly serious circumstances and then uh only for a time right to the extent that that's possible so obviously there would be um circumstances under which 
such exclusion would be necessary and possibly even a perpetual, right? But those would be comparatively rare. And it seems to me, um, now maybe this is just, you know, my own prejudices, but somebody smoking pot in high school doesn't quite rise to that, to that level. Um, and I'm not saying that to endorse it, right, or, 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 or to completely excuse such a thing, but I just, I mean, think about the seriousness of the punishment that you're inflicting, and you're doing it without a court of law, just in the court of public opinion. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. There's uh, our social nature, right, is such that human flourishing in general depends upon us having a decent reputation uh, so that we can cooperate effectively um, within society, right, uh -huh. uh, in order to flourish. So that seems to be the, the good that's, that's lost there. Um, albeit, I guess there's other probably things connected like fear and so forth um, uh, that have to be sort of thought about as well. But it really seems it's that loss of, of social relationship, right, that, uh, that detracts and brings into view. But I think even in the intention of the person who is bringing the sin or something like that or whatever to light, the intention of what they're actually trying to accomplish is plays a huge part in what it is, you know, where mm -hmm. this turns into from telling the truth to something like this in a detraction where, you know, why are you revealing this thing? You know, sure. it's one thing, you know, if somebody's running for public office and they smoked weed in high school, I mean, that just, that it really doesn't have anything. Now, if they smoked weed last week, you know, that's something, that's <laughs> right. something totally different. You know, are you putting it out there simply for the other person to look bad? Uh, or are yeah. you trying to, uh, or, do, or do you have some sort of other intention that may be justified, uh, or that may justify you revealing this truth? You know, I think that has a huge part of it to play. Yeah, and you can imagine that there might be some truths that, you know, certain parties might always have some right uh, to, right? I mean, you know, people, but there could be such, there could be such things. But it seems to me that most things that people would just like, to have die in their past, right, um, are not of enduring significance for the larger human community and should just be left to die. I mean, you know, your, your, your high school life is pretty much, it seems to me, largely, um, yeah. I mean, something a lot of people would just prefer to forget anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, for the most part, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think even within, you know, not just the downplay of some of these uh, sins that we used to, uh, you know, focus on or at least have particular knowledge of on a on a usual basis as a society um you know i think even um one of the other things i think we we could talk about is kind of the downplaying of the ten commandments uh you know um you know sometimes you or there was an article written about you know why do christians why do they want to post the ten commandments why don't they want to post the beatitudes or some saying of jesus uh why the ten commandments um, you know, didn't Jesus, you know, didn't he usher in a, a new law? Uh, uh, didn't he do away with the old law? Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> so in Matthew chapter five, right, where the Sermon on the Mount begins, Jesus says quite explicitly, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to bring to fulfillment. Right. And then he goes on to say that um, that. The person who uh, relaxes, right, even the slightest jot or tittle of the law, and the language he's using here in Greek, right, indicates 
just sort of in a seemingly insignificant stroke of the pen in the formation of a letter, like remembering to dot your I or cross your T, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, if someone relaxes the law in, in such a way, right, even to the slightest degree, he'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, right? Uh, if he does this and teaches others to do so. But if, on the other hand, right, he observes the law and teaches others to do so, then he'll be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So um, it seems to me just, it, it is, it's a wildly distorted interpretation, right, of the distinction between law and grace to suggest that, um, that when Christ came, he abrogated the Ten Commandments. That's absurd. And, and, and Dr. Smith, correct me if I'm wrong, the Ten Commandments are very much related to just natural moral law. Some may even say they are the privileged expression of the natural moral law. Yeah, it's certainly Thomas's position, I think a position of majority of medieval uh, theologians. Um, you know, sometimes there's these arguments and controversies about, um, you know, well, what are the, uh, it, it, like if you just read part of what Thomas has to say, there's a lot of ink spilt about uh, what are the most basic precepts of the natural law and so mm -hmm. forth. Um you know, interestingly, I mean, if you keep reading, Thomas pretty explicit um, about this, uh, once you get into looking at what he has to say about divine law, right? So when he talks about, <clears throat> like, the, the Ten Commandments and, and other things, right? He, and he makes a, a distinction that's not unique to him between various kinds of precepts in divine law or, or in Scripture. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, he's pretty explicit that he thinks the Ten Commandments are part of the, the natural law, Um so, uh, yeah, I mean, he, uh, he certainly uh, uh, thinks so. Yeah, and I think St. Uh, Augustine had a great line that, about the Ten Commandments that he said, you know, what, what uh, God wrote on the tablets is what man ceased to read in his heart. Uh -huh. um, that because of sin, you know, the, these things that had come naturally to us uh, uh, came difficult to us. And so God literally mm -hmm. had to put into stone what we ceased to read on our own hearts. Uh, and right. I think that I think right. that really serves as kind of the the you know the reason why Jesus says you know I've I've come to fulfill it, not do away with it because uh, uh, in one way he can't because it is that uh, uh, kind of natural law that that uh, gives us kind of that reflection of of who God is. Sure. Yeah. Of course. The 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 the, um, the popular rebuttal right is going to be well. Um, so I just happen to be reading through uh, the end of Leviticus right now. Um, so one of the, the uh, you know, a popular rebuttal would be, well, does that mean that we need to, to keep all the purity laws uh, that are, say, spelled out um, in Leviticus in, in great detail? Things about, you know, using two kinds of cloth <laughs> in a garment, uh, et cetera. So what do, you say, what do you say to that kind of objection, Rich? Well, I would say that um, that kind of an interpretation would be foreign to the um, to the traditional Hebrew understanding of the relationship between sort of the uh, Levitical rubrics and the Ten Commandments. All right. So, um, in other words, like the question, it's sort of a wrong-headed question from a traditional point of view, even from within Judaism, because they saw the possibility, right, that there were, in fact, um, righteous men who were not ritually pure, right? 
So here is an example, right, in the in the story of what's his name, uh, Naaman in Second Kings, right? Okay. So he's the guy with the skin disease, and he shows up, um, and he's a pagan, right? But he shows up to be cured by the prophet, who then instructs him. He the prophet won't actually interact with him directly because the because Naaman is ritually unclean. He's a pagan, and so um, he just sends instructions for what to do. So the guy. He does what he's supposed to do. He cleans cleans himself seven times in the river, and he comes back, and his skin is um, healed, right, like a newborn baby. And that, of course, as we know, typologically is a sign of um, not only his the cleansing of the physical disease, right, but of a restoration of his of his inner spiritual purity. He's forgiven of his sins, and so he wants to give a um, he wants to give a gift. To the prophet who won't accept it again because the guy is um ritually on he's not in the covenant right he doesn't he doesn't observe the laws that would make him clean in the covenantal sense but he says well then at least let me have a couple of uh you know cartloads of dirt so i can go back and i'll never worship any god other than yahweh uh and so this this uh this request is granted right so the the, the point of this story, right, is to remind us of a, of a distinction made within Judaism, which is one which, from a Christian perspective, is actually quite important, because it's what Paul uh, it, it seems to invoke in his distinction between the law and grace. So he notes, Paul, right, that there was grace before there was the law, by which here is meant the, um, the Levitical law. And that the Levitical law is really sort of an overlay, but it's not the same thing. Uh, right, so the um, you can have okay, the Levitical law comes after Abraham, right? But Abraham was certainly in covenant with God, and so it's possible to have this kind of righteousness and yet not have the Levitical law. So when we bring the covenant, when we invite Gentiles into the covenant with God, we're not asking them to observe the whole of the Levitical law, but we are asking them to accept that which. Uh, that which is coterminous with a life of grace. And that is expressed in the Ten Commandments. Okay, so that we want to, even though the Ten Commandments in their written form come to us at a time after Abraham, right? What we want to say is the moral law that they express is, is, the, the, is the pure life uh, of the person who lives in righteousness before God. Does that make sense, right? So this is this is something that exists before the Levitical law, um, something that exists in the time of Abraham, something that it really goes back even to the time of creation. So when we're talking about the Levitical law or the Ten Commandments, we're talking about two distinctly... Distinct things, yeah. right. So one, of the, uh, so one of the things that, that's brought up in this uh, type of argument is the claim that that um, there is no there is no division, right? And the the law. Some people will say that, and that subsequent Christian theologians who who talked about this um, the, this idea that there's distinct kinds of precepts, right? Uh -huh. um, that they're just sort of imposing that. Um, and whatever we might think about the exact distinct terminology used, right? So the traditional terminology for a lot of theologians, right, is the, the distinction between um, you know, judicial, ceremonial and uh, moral precepts, right? But uh, whether one likes that particular language or not, uh, you're arguing that it is, in fact, uh, authentic to, to recognize that there are uh, distinctions within the law, 
uh, and that some of those things may be binding um, while other, uh, you know, after Christ, while others maybe are not. The view that um, the observance of the Levitical law or the rabbinical precepts is the means by which a person attains salvation, right, uh, was not a universally held position in ancient Judaism. In fact, right, is a kind of abuse that Christ recognizes. And in recognizing it, uh, so it's not simply that Christ comes along as Messiah and reveals this and nobody had known it before. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, he's correcting something from within the Jewish tradition itself. Right. The, the, so there, there had been this tendency, as as we've seen also within uh, segments of Christianity, right, toward a sort of a sort of Pelagian uh, understanding of uh, of righteousness through works that wasn't authentic. Right. So they they didn't believe really uh, that righteousness came through the performance of these acts, but they did see the performance of these acts as necessary for them as Jews. They didn't see the Gentiles not keeping kashrut as the reason the Gentiles were lost. Do you see what I'm... That wasn't what was wrong with the Gentiles. What was wrong with the Gentiles is they worshipped false gods and they engaged in all kinds of debauchery, not that they ate pork. <laughs> you know, even when you look at Christ's own life and what he said, you know, with, especially with the rich young man, like, I think there's a reason why, you know, he says, what must I do to enter uh, eternal life? Uh-huh. The first thing Jesus says is, do you follow the commandments? <laughs> Right. I mean, and that's fairly clear within sacred scripture that Jesus begins there when he's talking about uh, entrance into eternal life, uh, the Ten Commandments. Do you follow them? And he's like, yes, I do. So he moves on. So to... let me, yeah. Let me pose this question, right? Sure. Which I think puts the, the issue here in context. Do we really imagine that God invites us into a covenant in which there are no implications for our personal conduct and choices, right? I mean, <laughs> it's a great question. It, do, we, do, we actually, yeah. do we actually believe that? And if we don't, if we say no, if God invites us into covenant with himself, there have to be implications, right? There have to be consequences for that relationship that involve the way I conduct myself, the way I choose, that involve outward actions. And that's what the Ten Commandments expresses. Is there somebody that can, and you can go down the list here, you know, is there somebody that can be in a good relation, in a right relationship with God and be a murderer? Somebody that doesn't even recognize God, uses his name in vain, uh, Uh, worships other gods, steals? Right. So this goes back actually to to Dr. Smith's question, you know, the distinction between certain dimensions of the law, right? This idea, right, which is, you actually see this, some people hold, right, there's no, all sins are the same, right? And any any breach of the law deserves hell. Um, And so, right, they would even, they would see some of these people in the most radical cases, like this guy who wrote this article, would would see the, the whole moral law, including the Ten Commandments, as having been abrogated by, um, by Christ, right? Because we're, we're not, we don't have to get circumcised, we don't have to keep kashrut, and so we also don't have to not kill people, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that actually appears to be the position he's articulating, okay? No one really believes that, right? <laughs> Nobody, no rational person actually holds this, this view. But James, okay says this and this is so i want we want to understand what james is actually saying what he's not saying okay Mm -hmm. so people who advocate for the idea that all sin is the same and since jesus forgives sin in grace right then he just does away with the whole concept of sin altogether so it's it's meaningless to us 
That's that's a completely wrong-headed interpretation of this. James is saying a person who breaks one part of the law breaks the whole of the law, right? So a person doesn't have to commit murder in order to be guilty of adultery if he commits adultery, right? To, or to be a person who's guilty of breaking the law, right? He bra- He's a lawbreaker because he commits adultery. He doesn't have to also commit murder and steal and lie and do all this other stuff, um, right? It's sufficient yeah. that he do one thing that contravenes the known law of God, okay? Why? Well, this is the important thing, right? The, so in order for us to understand what James is talking about, this is what we need to understand. Because it's the same one, the same person who says, thou shalt not kill as thou shalt not steal, right? Mm-hmm. As thou shalt not commit adultery. Right, right. So the offense in sin is the offense against the lawgiver, right? Against God. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and only sort of by way of means the offense itself, right? See what I mean? Sure. So it, it, James's point, right, is that it all comes down to the centrality of the covenantal relationship with God. Now, in traditional Judaism, that covenantal relationship with God is expressed through the overlay of the Levitical law. Um, And Paul never calls that issue into question. What he calls into question is how it relates to Gentiles who wish to enter into covenant with God, right? Who weren't recipients of the Levitical law. Do they then have to become recipients of the Levitical law, be circumcised, observe kashrut? And Paul says no. Why? Because what's of the essence is still the same. But he still insists, right, that they obey what's central in terms of our conduct toward God. Remember that at the Council of Jerusalem, right, you're still forbidden from eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and you're forbidden from engaging in uh, porneia, so which is uh, essentially you know various forms of sexual uh, impurity, right? So th- these things remain, but not the whole of the Levitical law. So they were they remain binding even upon Gentiles who enter into Christianity. No discussion really is undertaken about what Jews who became Christians were expected to do for the remainder of their lives. That's not part of the discussion of the Council of Jerusalem, except to the extent that those who minister to people who have converted from being Gentiles, right, need to make themselves accessible. So Peter is put in a situation where he now has to be willing to touch unclean things, right, to to eat unclean foods, because he governs a church, which has Gentile converts yeah, to go to the house of Cornelius. Right. 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 Well, that's a good, uh, I think that's a good answer, uh, to that sort of objection. And, um, you know, I think it, it, you know, behooves us to think about that. There are these distinctions, right. That need to be made. It's kind of a simplistic, I guess, way of trying to, to sidestep those sorts of things. It is kind of funny. I mean, you wonder like, which of the 10 commandments do you really not want to obey? Uh-huh. You know, I mean, they're all pretty basic. Mostly, right? You know. So, well, these days, I think it's probably adultery and coveting. Yeah, I guess so. But um, I mean, you know, it's pretty still a pretty rare person who would say, "I want to commit adultery." Like, you know, I'm I'm down with adultery. You know, I mean, usually yeah. when I yeah when I, when I throw this out in class, you know, I mean, adultery is one of my go tos where I still expect everybody to pretty much think adultery is bad. You mm-hmm. know, uh, and usually they do. Now, of course, like what all fits within that category might be a broader discussion, but. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, but, you know, most people still think, you know, like, well, you should you should at least, you know, be faithful to your spouse while you're married. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, Unless yeah. you both amicably decide not to be faithful to each other. Right. 
Sure, but even that's still, I mean, there's still enough of uh, a moral sense, of, you know, that, that that's weird, at least. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anomalous. Yeah. Actually, you know, it's interesting. But you never know. I mean, things could change. But, it, you know, like I, I'll, I'll bring up sometimes the, the fact that um, occasionally it comes up uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, uh, marriage to Simone de Beauvoir. Right. Yeah. You know, they, they had it famously an open marriage. And, you know, people are like, oh, wow. OK, great. Because that comes up, you know, when you think about sort of you know, defining everything for yourself, you know, well, does that mean like like what about marriage fidelity? You know, that almost it's funny that every time I teach that, that it comes up the question about uh, defining marriage. But, you know, it's interesting, though, because it does uh, still then wrap around to back you know, when you think about detraction that that we shouldn't think that like moral obligations like detraction have just ceased, right? Because of, for whatever reason, I guess that because Christ abrogated a deal of law and something like that. Yeah. Or, or the fact that we've ceased to talk about it. You know, I think that's, I think that's a huge thing. Like we don't Mm -hmm. teach it because we've stopped talking about it. No, the church still teaches very clearly, you know, Mm -hmm. on these issues, you know, the centrality of the 10 commandments, that detraction still is a sin even if we may not always hear about it, yeah. you know, and especially like the, like the point you made, Dr. Buzicali, you know, it's especially today, you know, mm. we, it needs to be talked about more because I mean, it's a, it's a central part of uh, political strategy and even, you yeah. know, I, you know, even uh, the, the way things play out within, you know, even our personal relationships, because, you know, it's not talked about. It's a toxin in social media. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So- yeah. Not only, not only is it a go-to political strategy these days, right? And it seems to me just egregiously immoral in the way that in the way that it's used. Absolutely. But it also plagues people, ordinary people, right, who otherwise are not public figures, right? Yeah. On social media, what was the case? Uh, this kid recently got um, got a uh, an award, a Heisman Trophy or something, right? This was a recent thing, and. Um, and immediately somebody trotted out some tweet from when he was 14 or something. Right. And, you know, first of all, I mean, he's a kid, right? He's like 18 or 19 or something. And you're trotting out this tweet from when he was a 14-year-old kid. He was a 14-year-old kid. Now, I don't know if you remember being 14, <laughs> but though it probably, you know, wasn't your best year. <laughs> probably, it's probably not you at your most prudent you probably weren't uh, the what the most well spoken back then, right? Right, right. Can we just let people be forgotten, right? Can we just let things die? So immediately this this thing gets trotted out and and there's an outcry about it. Yeah. Now I, I do get the impression that some people are losing their appetite for this, thank God. But um nonetheless, right? I mean it is a it it seems to me it's a serious plague on our society. And while we may not have needed to talk about this particular sin very often in the 1990s. It seems to me that we really need to start talking about it again, because in the age of social media, the damage that can be done to a human being just by sort of looking up one's digital trail from now, I mean, think about how long the internet's been around, right? Yeah. 20 years ago, it's immense. And we, we just need to stop destroying people's lives. It's interesting. It's, it's almost kind of a uh, kind of a blood sport, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and one thing that's interesting about it, just kind of what it says about kind of the human heart, right? That we enjoy it, right? Yeah. Even if it's not, even if we're not like getting anything out of it, we kind of enjoy seeing, you know, maybe celebrities and and then maybe other people as well, um, you know, seeing their their comeuppance, 
right? <laughs> you know, they're uh, uh, they're you know seeing that they that they are sinners too, or whatever. I mean, so it's, it's a strange thing to enjoy knowing that somebody else, I don't know, committed adultery or something like that. You know, uh, you know, why would you enjoy uh, seeing someone else's reputation ruined, except that there's something wrong with your heart? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's well, a that's good what point. it seems to reflect. I think what's even, what's even sadder is that people will go to the extent of posting a video or posting a, a particular image that's embarrassing or something like that, not just because they enjoy it, but be, so that they can get somebody to click on it. Mm-hmm. Like to, you know, the, the, the value of a click nowadays is, mm-hmm. is astounding. I mean, people will do yeah. anything. People go to any length. People will trash right. other people's good names just so that they can get kind of this this weird affirmation uh, uh that's completely <laughs> impersonal and uh, uh-huh. uh just odd uh that mm-hmm. they'll you know that yeah. that is what the, that is what they seek that is what will bring them happiness is this this constant seeking of, yeah. of clicking and, and liking and uh mm-hmm. oh it's mad so there, there can be a lot of motives right behind detraction yeah sure some of them um some of them of which you might be very well aware and others, you know, might be sort of subconscious or pre-conscious motives. But I think that, you know, anytime you're about to engage in any sort of action, okay, so let's not, now, like James, you know, uses the language of loose lips, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, this is what we're talking about. You know, it, it, it was, it's a very serious sin and, and it used to be taken very seriously, right? So anytime you're about to engage in any sort of action, whether it's verbal, written, or through the posting of an image of some type, or anything that you might do, that you think might doing this could harm another person's reputation, I think you should ask yourself what justification you would have for doing it. And if that justification is proportionate to the effect that the thing will have. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if there's, if there's, say, for example, a bad theologian out there or a bad uh, Catholic author writing a book about bridges or something, just for example, I don't know off the top of my head, uh, uh, it's important for us to maybe, you know, or for somebody to point to point this out and say, you know, they're not trying to detract this, you know, somebody's name in that way. If a, if there's a bad theologian spreading something false, they're trying to uh, correct his mistake. They're trying to. Uh, right. They're not trying to detract his name. They're trying to fix something like that. So, I mean, like in, in certain, you know, in cases like that, again, the intention is not while your action may put him in a bad light, your intention mm-hmm. is to correct something that he is doing wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially if something that is done publicly, sometimes it right. needs to be corrected publicly. Yeah. So I wonder if you might, I wonder if you might say, uh, I don't know, I haven't thought about uh, thor- thoroughly about this. Uh, so I don't know if it's correct, but, but like maybe that, um, like say in the uh, example of public correction that really, you know, the lost reputation is, is a secondary effect, right? So that really what you're trying to do is, uh, dispute the error that's yeah. being propagated on the church or, or, or whatever. Uh, and you know, uh, albeit you wish it were the case that so-and-so's reputation wasn't damaged. That's a secondary unintended uh, or no, I should say non-intended effect, foreseeable, but not what you're intending when you correct the error. What you're correcting is the error uh, and protecting people uh, from the error. Yeah, yeah. A good way to think about that is say, okay, well, if somebody else wrote this book, would I still be doing this? Or would, if somebody else made this statement, would I still be making this correction? Yeah, 
I would, you know, then, sure. okay. You know, then that kind of, you know, it at least helps you purify, I think your own intentions, especially if something you're going to do can have those negative effects on somebody's reputation or their name in that way. Sure. It seems to me somewhat parallel. So sometimes when I'm teaching logic class, it's parallel. It's not the same, but um, as the question of when are you committing the fallacy ad hominem, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes attacking the man is a distraction from the argument. Right. And so, you know, you're 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 showing that you're trying you're inferring that someone's claim is false or invalid because of uh, the bad character or something of the person making the argument. You know, from a strictly logical point of view, that's that that's often invalid. Right. But it might be the case, right? That so, but there are times where I think paying attention to the person or the the proponent maybe does matter, right? So I mean, there are times like if you're having an argument about say, hiring somebody for a particular job, uh, and that job involves a lot of trustworthiness, right, or or sort of uh, public trust, uh, it's a fiducial kind of relationship, then you would have to say that that person's reputation and and character is relevant to the discussion. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree, yeah. So in such a case, it wouldn't really be detraction because it's not not irrelevant, it's not needless, uh, that sort of thing. And of course, if you think about sort of hiring somebody, it's not necessarily a public matter. Even in this case, you know, you, it would have to be something which you have reason to believe reflects that the person at this time in history is of bad character, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let me give you two uh, two kinds of cases here that seem interesting to me. So we'll do a little casuistry here. The first case is uh, when uh, you know that a friend of yours is engaged to someone, right? But you know about that person's um, uh, reputation maybe from the past. So maybe that's one one sort of nuance. Another nuance would be you know about this person's reputation from the present, uh-huh. right? That is, you know that the person is, um, I don't know, while they're engaged, habitually fornicating with other people. Then the those would seem to be two different cases. What do you think about yeah, that? Absolutely. No, I agree completely. They're completely different cases. You know, I would argue that, you know, you should probably keep your mouth closed in uh, the former case, right? Right. But in the latter case, um, you might want to say something. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you one other one. Uh, I've I've actually heard, um, know of somebody who had to kind of deal with this uh, issue. Um, uh, One of the the, the questions was knowing about um, the infidelity of of someone who is married. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Um, to know that a given spouse, right, has cheated on his wife in the uh, in the past, uh-huh. but is presently cheating on uh, uh, his spouse. Right? <laughs> uh, like, is that something you should just keep to yourself? Or, or yeah, I think so. You think so? I'm inclined to say, yeah. Now, you're talking about in the past. This is not something happening now, or not something yeah. that happened yesterday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it's receded into the past and the person has since reformed himself, yeah. then I would say keep your mouth closed. Yeah, what do you think, Jason? Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, I, mean I, I see Rich's, I see Rich's point. Uh, I think that's a, a valid stance. Um, <laughs> my mind is still open that that it could actually be. <laughs> well, make the argument. Why would it be? Why would it be okay to do? Just think about the implication is if you reveal this, it's likely to harm the relationship, which at this point, I mean, we're, we're assuming we're making a lot of assumptions, yeah, sure. which we know what happens when we make assumptions. Right. Right. 
But let's let's just let's grant for the sake of this discussion that by all outward appearances, the relationship in question is as stable and um, healthy as any other marriage. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I, I I would say yeah. You keep it. To, yeah, you keep it to yourself. Uh, probably in that situation, but. But I mean, I think, you know, if it, it, you know, if it's one of those things where, you know, if the dude's your buddy and he asks you, hey, I think this is happening, then you might want to say something. But oh, well, he's well, he's asking. Well, this is interesting now. So he's <laughs> so wait, but you said happening in the present, right? The okay. issue is oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. sometime in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So in the past, I mean, it would get more interesting. Right. If uh, if if Susie then asked you, hey, yeah. did you know that uh, that Dina is. Uh, is, did my spouse ever cheat on me? Something like that. <laughs> you know, that would make it, uh, I think, more difficult. But I think in general, I mean, it's obviously it's a, kind of a, it's a sensitive matter and a difficult matter. It strikes me that, that probably. Um, That's a tough one. Probably Rich is right, you know, like because you don't want to harm the marriage if there's uh, been repentance and uh or at least um reform you know in a situation like that where you know at the current state you know if everything seems fairly stable you don't know if there you know if there was inner reconciliation that had happened sure and the last yeah. thing you want to be is that guy that brings that up you know sure right. sure yeah i mean i'll be i think an ideal case would of course be that the that the once unfaithful uh husband um you know uh, not only um reforms but also you know maybe confesses uh of course there are a lot of questions about that i mean confesses to his, his spouse but um but yeah i think in general you'd have to think about that and that's like i said that's a hard case yeah. um where i think detraction you would be very tempted to but you might think it's still not it, going back to what you were saying before rich about the proportion effects mm-hmm. right it was the good achieved there versus the harm done right you may come to the judgment that the that the truth in this instance needs to be revealed to the person requesting it, but not by you, right? Mm-hmm. You may you may come to that conclusion. Like for example, let's say that you're 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 in this relationship, right? I mean, you're these are your friends, okay? You know them well, and this this scenario arises where you you know about something that happened early in their marriage, and now they're the other spouse is. Um, is beginning to ask questions about it, right? To become suspicious of something, right? And you can see that this person is is pushing and pushing for this information, right? Which you happen to know. But you fear that in revealing it, it will damage the relationship, sure. right? So what you should probably do in a case like that is urge the couple to, um, you know, seek professional help. Counseling, that's <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's probably what you ought to do in this case. And you should say to the to the guilty party. Right. Mm-hmm. This is what she's asked. Right. And I'm not going to tell her. But I think she needs to know in the presence of a counselor. It's not always the choice. It's not this dichotomy of choices of you either reveal the truth or you keep it to yourself. Like there's a mm-hmm. whole area of going uh going to the particular parties privately um you know and even in the cases of you know like people who cause you know public scandal and things like that many times people go to them or at least that's what bishops should be doing with say politicians and stuff is going to them privately uh and meeting with them before they go 
you know, publicly and uh, say something or release a, sa- a statement that could cause some negative reaction or negative harm to yeah. their uh, uh, to their name. So, I mean, you know, for for the Christian who who's in this uh, uh, situation of discerning what to do in a, in a particular case like this or like something else, it's important to, to you know, not just feel like you have just these two choices that there's so many different uh, options that you can go to and to work through these these decisions carefully thoughtfully prayerfully Uh, and this is also why uh, you know this goes back to again uh, like we said in the beginning uh, what we're trying to do at CSA is to help provide the tools uh, like an introduction to moral theology provide the tools uh, to be able to work through moral problems uh, it begins uh, with uh, this kind of infrastructure that Dr. Buzzichelli, uh sets up in the course. You know, in philosophy, Dr. Smith and his courses, uh, both historically and systematically, uh, tries to build the infrastructure where we can do philosophy and, you know, work through the issues of the day, particularly as they, they take on new forms, like talking about the sin of detraction today with social media and video is totally different than, you know, than it was even, like we said, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, sure. So, uh, and I hope uh, hope everybody's enjoyed the conversation uh, today. In the meantime, check us out at catholicstudiesacademy.com. Until next time, God bless.